This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know those millennials. They're just so lazy. As I look at Ben yawning through the middle of my show. They're not lazy, folks. They were misunderstood. Misunderstood, totally. Yep. And they were basically like monsters created to fell. That's what I was thinking, too. So let me give you some other coaching tools. And this isn't just for millennials. This would be for some some ideas for how you can coach other people when they bring you their problem. Right? Because it's easy you know, you may have a friend that constantly comes and brings you all of their issues, and you need to fix this for me. Um, but if you're going to coach people, and this would work great with millennials, you know, in coaching them on their own uh, issues as well. But um, I'm going to give you just five basic keys, okay, as we go through this coaching corner. Uh, the first key is to know that the answers, any answer, or I call them a hook, a hook might be something that keeps somebody stuck. All of their answers, all of their hooks are in them, not you. So when somebody comes to ask me a, um, you know, a question, but it's involving them or their life or their uh, experience in the world, when it's about them, the answers are in them, not me. And you got to realize that as a coach. And there's a lot of value to knowing that because if I understand the problems are in them, the issues are in them, then... Honestly, then I can uh, kind of make it more about them. I also don't have to be offended if they use or take my advice or not. Um, I also can know that if I give a solution that doesn't work, it's because I probably didn't unhook the right issue in them. So I want you to be thinking about somebody that comes up to you, asks you a lot of questions, wants your advice, maybe somebody that doesn't seem to take it a lot, uh, or or the people that maybe are around you wanting insight but don't necessarily ask for it. Know that their issues, their answers are in them. And I'm convinced that uh, that those issues are in them. And I, I, want them, I want them to be responsible for the fact that this is your world. A lot of times I'll ask somebody a question and they're like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Well, you must. I don't know is your fast answer that you're just telling me as a coach – but you're the only person that knows why you do what you do, right? I mean, I can guess why you do it. I can surmise. But you're the one with all of the information. You're the one with all the data. So make sure when you coach somebody that the answers are inside of them, even if it's just coaching them to kick a ball in a goal. And if if they have the inability to do it, then that hook is stopping them. But that hook is inside of them. And the job of a really good coach is to get inside that person and help that person find out what their answers are. Um, One reason that that's important, too, is because in motivation theory, it would say that unless this person – unless the answers are coming from this person, they're less likely to be motivated to actually do anything about it anyway. So turn it back on them and – let me show you how we do that. One way to do it is to use questions, right, to turn on some lights. So like, let's say a mother came in and, you know, I don't 
my son, we, we were going to move him to a new school. I'm pretty sure it's, I mean, it's an important thing. I'm not sure he's going to like it, but I, I want to move him to this new school. I think it's better for him. And um, they might just right out of the chute say, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know your son. I don't know everything about what's going on here. So be careful to not just jump on that answer. Well, yeah, I would totally move him. I was moved to a new school and I was his same age and I turned out great. Um, instead, use some questions, right? So, you know, just use some questions like, you know what? I don't, I don't know what to do about moving your son yet, but, you know, it sounds like you're really considering it. Um, but before I answer this, can I ask you a few questions? Like, so what are your goals for your son and this situation? And try to help him by just asking the question, what are your goals? It allows them to have to go evaluate their goals. Or, uh, you know, what, what do you perceive the problems might be with moving him to this area, to this new school? What does your heart tell you about this decision? What does your mind tell you? You know, and which of those two do you trust more? Which answer do you trust more? Another question you could just simply ask is, why are you asking someone else's advice on this? Why are you not just making the decision yourself? But push on them, right? Because... And push with questions and let these questions not be to trap them, not be to beat them up, not even just so you know how to answer this person. Ask the questions so that this person has to explore what they are doing, right? If the, if the issue is in them, then ask the questions that help them explore it. The more information we gather here, it's also going to do two things. It's going to give me more data, but it's probably going to lower their emotion about this decision. Anytime somebody brings me a big, you know, bundle of emotion, I usually like to get them talking and sharing their feelings about the emotion. So first step, understand their answers and hooks are in them, in them, not me. Second is use questions to turn the lights on. My goal is just to get information. Once I can figure out what their goals are with their son and what's the history of the situation and what are they feeling right now about it and why are you asking me, why aren't you asking someone else and what does your gut tell you? A lot of those might – they might just answer it themselves, right? Another thing I like to do is as they're talking is I reflect back what I hear them saying. I'll reflect back. So it sounds like you really like to have your child try another school, but you're afraid he'll lose friends if he goes to the new school. Is that what you're saying? And I just hold it up back to what they were – to them so that they have to look at what they're saying. And the way I do that is I just – basically paraphrase what they just told me. And then I say, so is that what you're saying? And then they have to agree or disagree. Well, yeah, that's – well, and it's it's not just like that. I also – I don't want to feel like I'm too demanding that I'm pushing my son this way. Now, the more they talk, I love it because the more information it gives me about them, but it also allows me to maybe look a little bit deeper at what their motives are, what's driving them, what their concerns are. If this mother, for example, keeps saying, I just don't want to make the decision for him. I just I want I I don't want to make a mistake and I feel like I might be pushing him too hard. But then I'd go talk more about that. Man, it sounds like you feel like you're applying a lot of pressure about this decision. Tell me more about that and then let them explore that issue. Does that make sense? 
So as they're sharing their issues, the issue's usually never the real issue we're discussing. This isn't about school. This is about this mother's concerned about her son. She's concerned, and she wants to make a change for her son. And she's also concerned that the change will create other problems, like he will lose his friends, or she's just being too demanding. So if you hold it up, don't agree with it, don't disagree with it, don't argue it. I don't even give other advice. I just say, I just kind of let them kind of sift through what they're thinking about. And by not taking a position, then they don't have to like, you know, retract into their position, and then we don't have to debate about it. Keep it very open so we can keep this issue moving until we find out what's going on. Then another rule I like to use is I point out their inconsistencies. So it sounds like you're worried about your son and, you know, and his grades, and yet you also don't want to feel like you're making the decision for your son. Is that what you're, is that what you're feeling? This, that's a little bit of an inconsistency, right? You want him to move on. And you're concerned it's not a great idea. Point out the inconsistencies. What I find many times, it's the inconsistencies in our thinking that come out in a conversation. And if we can hold it up, not call them on it. Oh, it sounds like this is what's really going on. You don't need to be the pop psychologist. Just I'm noticing that you you really feel like you're pushing your kid too hard. And... You also really feel strongly that he needs to move on. Talk to me about that. And then if I can get them to be honest a little bit more about the inconsistency, that's where I see a lot of truth come out when I'm coaching couples, when I'm working with people. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. And so point out those inconsistencies. And then last and certainly not least, be cautious about giving advice, Right? Be cautious about giving advice. And one reason I say that is because um, people take your advice, right? So if you give advice, people are going to take it. That's one of the weirdest things I learned being a kind of a radio TV personality is people actually take your advice. Be super careful offering it. The other reason I want you to be super careful offering advice is because um, they also need people to blame. So if they don't like your advice or if your advice backfires, you're the one that gave it. So they will hold you accountable to it, right? Five basic, easy coaching steps. Know your answers and hooks are in the people you're talking to, not you. Use questions to turn on some lights. Reflect back what you hear them saying. Point out their inconsistencies, cautiously, of course. And be careful giving advice, folks. Be careful. I've seen people advise a divorce because their friend gave them that advice. Be careful the advice you give anybody, um, especially if you haven't done the other steps before it. Stick with us, folks, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. What if our best intended efforts to protect our children's health were found to be the primary cause of some of the chronic illnesses that are on the rise? 
That's exactly what medical evidence now shows. One in 13 children now suffers from food allergies. In the last eight years, the number of children diagnosed with ADHD has jumped nearly 50%, and one in 45 children now carry an autism diagnosis. Many parents have been told that their children have these conditions for life, and they're just simply untreatable, uh, except our next guest um, may have an inside track, uh, some ideas that might help us uh, in some of these areas, and at least hopefully improve our health, our our homes, and uh, maybe just the well-being of our families. Dr. Maya Sheetreet Klein joins us now uh, this morning to talk a little bit more about this topic. Uh, Dr. Uh, Sheetreet Klein, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. What a fun book. I mean, it's such an interesting idea. It seems like, you know, farmers forever have been out there getting dirty, in the dirt, breathing the fresh air, and eating healthy food. Why wouldn't we go back to that style? Well, I think part of it is like we've really just moved away from a, a lifestyle that's outdoors. So we've now become, you know, pretty addicted, I think, as a society, um, and we've become pretty interested in keeping things clean and sterile as much as possible and, um, and doing that for our kids. So we're missing out on a lot of the microbes and time outdoors and kind of the fresh, unprocessed food that used to be much more available. Now, and this is such an interesting, interesting thing, your background, you're a pediatric neurologist and a mother of three, and a lot of your... your uh, your, your feeling around this, your energy around this started with the, a focus on your own children. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think for many, for many doctors especially, we have these epiphanies because our children end up acting as our teachers yeah. and, um, or family members or ourselves sometimes. But um, for me, I really had a, an experience with my own son, my youngest, when he was about a year old, started to have breathing breathing difficulties. It was, you know, sort of like asthma a lot. And it really went on and on and on and on. It didn't just happen occasionally, but Mm. it was pretty much continuous. And he had weird rashes. He stopped gaining new speech. So he had been a really early talker. Wow. And then kind of plateaued. And, you know, as a a pediatric neurologist, obviously, and for any parent, I mean, it was terrifying. And, and nobody seemed particularly concerned. Our pediatrician, who was a very loving person and a, and a you know, old-time, really invested pediatrician, you know, gave him antibiotics and steroids and then inhalers, you know, and we were <laughs> kind of doing all these things. And it seemed like the medication was actually making him worse. Ooh. And uh, finally, I was like, this can't continue in this way, but nobody really seemed interested in coming up with the root cause you know it was just like let's try to use this band-aid or that band-aid and finally i found an allergist who was willing to test him for food allergies and it turned out he was allergic to soy oh wow i had been giving him soy milk when he was a year old you know actually i was still breastfeeding him but he was also getting soy milk when i was at work and, uh, like as a healthier you know, option, probably. I thought it, well, he yeah. was a little, he got gassy with, with milk. And well, I thought, who well, you know, this is healthy. Yeah. And it turned out that what he was getting every single day was actually making him incredibly sick, not just affecting his gut, but also his lungs and also his, his development and his brain. Wow. And, and you're, you're paying attention to that. 
because there's a cause and effect to a lot of our foods and, and our lifestyle. But it's not always like an immediate cause and an immediate effect. It's not always like they go into, you know, some shock and drop and have and lose their ability to speak. It just might take years. Well, exactly. And there, you know, we think of the only kind of reaction you can have to food or, you know, any kind of allergy has to be like anaphylaxis. Right. Grab an EpiPen. You know, you're, you're keeling over, as you say, and, you know, your throat closes up, the hives. That's a very classic reaction. But from a, you know, from a neurological perspective and even from an allergist perspective, there's actually something called delayed hypersensitivity. And that hypersensitivity is something that can take um, hours or even days. In my son's case, when he had, once we took him off of soy, his breathing symptoms completely went away hmm. and didn't come back unless he had an exposure. And it turned out soy is a hidden food in a lot of different processed foods and restaurant foods. So we, we really learned a lot. That was sort of the beginning of my education. But in his case, it would be about 48 hours. So 24 hours later, he'd start to have a runny nose. And 48 hours later, the breathing issues would begin. Isn't that amazing? And that's such a delay. You might think it had something to do with that day. Oh, well, we were around a dog today. Exactly. Exactly. And then we just but keep I mean, eating or drinking soy. What I try to tell soy. people is that, is that every, every symptom has a reason. Things don't just happen for no reason. We don't, we're not always able to be good enough detectives to discover the reason, but it's always happening because of something. And, you know, it's important to really kind of be thinking and be critical of, you know, what's going on um, when you have a child who's having, you know, illnesses because sometimes you can really make connections and change the course of their illness. When you say the dirt cure, um, what does that have to do with, because uh, to me, that that philosophy of becoming your own like detective, that's a really great idea. But the dirt cure, too, I guess, is that there's we also might be overprotecting our kids by keeping them away from germs. Well, what I mean when I say the dirt cure is three things. I mean exposure to germs and microbes. I mean eating fresh, unprocessed food from healthy soil and getting children outdoors in nature. So for me, those are the three foundational ways that we can reverse the course of what's happening in children's health right now, and really all of our health, is related to our, our body's need for those three elements that are all related to dirt that we're really not getting. And would also, I think, really prevent a lot of the need for all the pharmaceuticals people are getting um, and, and uh, even... It, you know, being out in nature actually even helps with mood and cognition. I see so many children who are anxious, who are depressed, who are, um, have ADD or ADHD diagnoses, who have executive functioning issue. Being outdoors in nature, there's actually many studies that I talk about in The Dirt Cure, which show that all of those things can improve just by being outside so in nature. Talk about some of the, the chronic illnesses, um, like... I, we we know exercise produces certain chemicals that that are that can be can act like antidepressants and um, talk about how not being outdoors and not having the exposure to nature impacts us. Well, 
So, you know, we know that there's a lot related to screen time, right? And we know that that keeps us probably a lot more indoors and certainly kids more indoors, right? I mean, I don't know about you when I was a kid. My mom basically, like, I was 10 years old. She kicked me out of the house (laughs) in the morning, let's say in the summer. I would hop on my bike, bike around to my friends. We'd go, you know, play tag or we'd go play by this creek near our house. I mean, kids are not doing that in the same way, particularly because so many of us live in urban areas. But, you know, even in suburban areas, it's much more, kids are much more indoors. And the kinds of things it seems to do, I mean, for one thing, there's a really interesting body of scientific literature that shows that being outdoors and being exposed to natural light prevents near, developing nearsightedness. <laughs> really? So, something from one to three hours a day is what they recommend to prevent nearsightedness. We used to think it was totally genetic. But actually, and probably there's a component, of course, that is genetic, just like with every condition. But there's also another element. We need to be interacting with our terrain, with our environment, and that light, they found out completely by accident in these studies, is what actually helps prevent (laughs) this epidemic of nearsightedness. In Korea right now, almost 97% of young men are nearsighted. Are you kidding me? That is crazy. That and, and it's they're all probably on devices, right? Sitting in a well, house. And they're indoors, yeah. So actually, they've created a public health program, an initiative, getting people outdoors to try, getting kids outdoors to prevent. You know, all those hours indoors they're spending also in school. Mm-hmm. They get them outside. Well, and I'm going to tell you, being nearsighted in a war, that's not going to help for everybody. <laughs> That's a big problem when all of yeah. your young men are nearsighted. This is um, it's it's crazy. Like, it, but again, it it seems like the system. It's not just immediate cause always and immediate effect. We're always so into the immediate learning. Um, th- this process takes so much time that it's almost like we've been lulled to sleep. Well, absolutely, things happen in this kind of very gradual. Um, insidious way where suddenly we're we're seeing so many health issues and they kind of creep up in you and then you know I talk about this in the book like I have so many patients who come and say oh my child's healthy my child's normal but it turns out you know they go to they they poop like once a week and you know they have they have seasonal allergies so they're taking something for that they have eczema so they're on steroid cream they you know there's like a long list of different medications that they're taking and it's sort of like it entered in such an insidious way they don't think oh my child's on five different medications Mm -hmm. but but here we learn that you know there's such a fascinating study as well about being outdoors how it impacts us so soil itself is filled with amazing microbes that we interact with when we're outdoors and so um, one teaspoon of soil has as many microbes as all the people on earth and it's (laughs) unbelievable right yeah And one of those kinds of organisms, I mean, think of how many we still have yet to learn about. One of them, um, called Mycobacterium vacai, actually has been studied, and it's been shown that it boosts serotonin levels similar to um, SSRI antidepressants like Prozac or Zoloft. Oh, my heaven. So the kid eating the dirt is really probably self-medicating. Well, maybe <laughs> out in the garden levels, absolutely, because yeah. they're also adding microbes into their gut. Absolutely, you know. But yeah, and and actually, another study that looked at that same organism found that um, in animal studies that that mice were able to complete a maze 
in half the time and with less anxiety, a difficult maze, than the mice who didn't get exposed to that. So there's this thinking that it actually boosts cognition and, and helps us feel more relaxed, which makes sense. Oh, totally. Well, and then if, you're, if you add on top of it that you're outdoors um, with the sun beaming down on you, giving you some vitamin D, you're getting fresh air, your body is moving... I mean, you add all of that, and you're not having the negative effects of being indoors with with that type of lighting and a screen in front of your face. Boom. Right. And there's more, actually, because there's very interesting data that shows that when we are around trees, the more trees there are, the healthier we are. And when trees are actually cut down, more people die. That's population studies. Oh, my heavens. So we're very, very, we're in a very deep connection with the natural world, whether we, whether we know it or not, whether we want to be or not. And when we aren't honoring that connection and nurturing that connection, it actually leads to illness. We, we actually are sicker. Yeah. And, and, and then we just call this the new normal. We just think this is normal. This is who we are. We just have eczema. We have ADHD. We have... And I, and I better take some medicine for it. Well, and that's what's offered. You know, it's fascinating because, I mean, doctors, this is a whole body of scientific literature, and I referenced it throughout the book so that actually anyone, whether it be an educator, whether it be a parent or a grandparent, whether it be a physician, anyone can look and see the sciences right there. And, and yet we're not really taking steps to change to change what we're doing. You know, I right. mean, wouldn't you think that knowing this information, we would, we would actually want to make the day different for, let's say, school? <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. Yeah, let's get outside a little bit more. Let's, let's take our class outside to do an activity. Well, and even having, I think, you know, having a nature curriculum mm-hmm. um, is something I really strongly believe in. I mean, take kids out into the woods. In Japan, there's something called forest bathing. It's a it's, a, it's called Shinrin-yoku, and it actually uh, means immersing yourself in the forest, and it's used as preventive medicine there, where they've actually studied and found that being in the forest makes people more focused. They actually perform better in the classroom or in work, and they're happier, they sleep better, and they actually have higher levels of anti-cancer proteins in their bodies. So it actually completely transforms their immune system just by walking in the forest. Holy cow. You know, we, yeah, we got. Oh, this is good. Maya, we got to take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Maya Sheetreat Klein. She's the author of the book, uh, The Dirt Cure and Growing Healthy Kids with Food Straight from Soil. She's a, a pediatric neurologist, for heaven's sakes. And she's teaching us we got to get back to Mother Nature, man. Forget a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Maybe just a spoonful of dirt and you won't even need the medicine. How about that? We'll take a break, folks. We'll come back, continue this discussion about your health and uh, nature. Isn't it amazing? God provided the answer. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
You know, the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. Maybe there's more to it than just a, some philosophy or great wisdom. Maybe uh, the law of the harvest is also you need to get out. You need to get outdoors and uh, participate in a harvest of some sort. Eat fresher foods and uh, use use really what, what God gave us to be able to live healthier, happier lives. The soil, the, the earth. Nature, expose yourself. Uh, our guest says we need to we need to get back to the dirt cure. Expose ourselves to germs. Uh, get you know, eat fresh food, and get out and closer to nature. There's there's a lot of uh, incredible research talking about the benefits of all of that and how it may be able to uh, be the antidote, maybe or just the the necessary you know input to create a healthier life. Dr. Maya Sheetreet Klein is joining us. She's the author of The Dirt Cure, Growing Healthy Kids with Food Straight from the Soil. She's a pediatric uh, neurologist and mother of three. And uh, she has been basically on a, I guess, on a mission, trying to do what she can to improve the health of all of us and have us look at our health, I think, in a, in a more holistic way. Dr. Maya Sheetreet Klein, welcome back to the show. Thank you. What do you think? I mean, is is it possible that if that if we just you know move away a little bit from the technology? It's so interesting to me that many times technology and nature uh, they they kind of seem they seem like antithetical. They seem you don't want your phone near the dirt, near the water. You know, you, you so we almost need to walk away, or you can bring it, I guess, take pictures and. But in the end, you're just saying get back and allow nature to do what nature does. Well, I think there's nothing, there's nothing that can replace just walking in the woods or walking next to the beach with nothing and just taking in what's there, listening to the sounds and, you know, just letting – it really is – you know, it regulates your nervous system, but it's also very spiritual. I mean, I think yeah. it's working on us in a physical and emotional and a spiritual way all the time. Um, but I also think it's possible to bring technology and use it to connect yourself to the natural world. So some examples of how my family does that is, for one thing, pictures, right? I mean, that's, I think, using a phone, using a camera, but going and finding things that are beautiful um, or things that really, you know, make us feel, uh, you know, turned on for some reason or another. So that's one way. Another way is actually um, using, there are some great apps. So one of them is actually called Merlin, and it's uh, an ornithology program. It actually helps identify birds. Hmm. So if you hear a bird or spot a bird and you want to know what bird that is, <clears throat> you can actually go into this um, this app and it'll say how big is the bird, you know, what time of year is it, what does it look like, and then you can actually hear the the, the bird's song and it will tell you, you know, the top three birds it could be, which is yeah. fun, you know? Well, I mean, imagine having that as a kid. When you were a kid going out on your journeys near the river, the stuff mm-hmm. you could look up and find. Right, exactly. And then there's another thing that my kids really love um, to do with my husband, which is um, geocaching. Yeah, we do that a lot out here. You know, it's like a big digital universal. Explain it. Explain it. 
because and there's some people don't do this. Uh, we have a lot of children and da- and families that go out geocaching. Yeah, so I don't. I mean, you may be able to say more than I do, but really, it's just like finding. You know, if we're walking along somewhere and we checking for different. Um, different little areas of treasure, and right. then, you know, oh, my gosh, it must be over here. They go, they find it. It's hidden in some little place in the woods or park or wherever, and um, there'll be a little trinket inside, and then you leave a note or a little trinket when you take the one that's there, and it's just kind of a little fun it's a little fun treasure hunt. I it mean, is. it's just a way of kind of connecting. You're connecting with nature. You're connecting with other people, and and it's kind of fun because it's, technology at the same time so it is a way to kind of create adventure outside and um, get kids excited about it and again it's fairly simple if all you got to do is go look up geocaching um, online and you'll get a variety of sites and sources that can get you on an adventure in your area basically is do you see because it really is it's food and um but it's it's kind of allowing yourself to to get out psychologically, emotionally, physically, get active. We talk about we need to get our kids more active, and um, but as a, as a physician, you see kind of the immune the the immunology of this, the the power that all of this can have on our immune systems. Do you think we're we've been too uptight about keeping our kids clean, so clean that they don't? get any benefit from germs and bacteria and I think we've really uh we you know many many years ago <laughs> there was Louis Pasteur and the germ theory which offered a lot right he yeah. said there are invisible to us microbes um germs that can kind of attack enter our bodies attack us and potentially kill us and that was good it brought up hand-washing as something very important, which actually has saved lots of lives, and the idea of isolating or quarantining when someone's sick, and that's important. But on the other side of it, as we often do, we really swung the pendulum way in that direction, and we lost the idea that there could be more available to us or benefit to us, as there often is from anything from these same germs or microbes. And it turns out that, and I always say germs are microbes, but really germs are kind of like a pejorative term for, for microbes. And microbes mean bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites. And all of those things now are kind of coming up in the science as being beneficial from, obviously we all have heard, or most of us have heard about probiotics, where we actually on purpose take bacteria in pills yeah. <laughs> and swallow them. I mean, if you would have talked to people about doing that 30 years ago, they would have, you know thought you were an absolute lunatic. So that's one example. But even more than that, there are, um, there are scientific studies looking at giving parasite eggs to people with autoimmune diseases, and it's actually very helpful for things like allergies, asthma, autoimmune diseases, even neurologic illnesses that's being looked at. Hmm. Um, very interesting. Viruses, also a lot of benefit. Viruses, it turns out, take over for bacteria in our digestive tract um, when we are on antibiotics to help prevent any damage from happening. Isn't that it, Viruses end up protecting your body when and in, and in antibiotics fact, are on board. Help you. Um, there's also some studies on, let's say, mumps. People who have had mumps in childhood 
have half the risk of developing ovarian cancer later in life. Hmm. And yet we, we, yeah, we're so fearful of the initial threat, not seeing this, the systemic complexity that we might be benefiting from. Wow. It's looking at the whole picture. Yeah. Exactly. This, this is just about holistic, right? It's just seeing more of the whole picture and seeing and allowing nature to kind of do what nature should do. Well, I think that's really the big point is that the answers are available to us if we look at what's already here. We don't have to keep coming up necessarily with more and more kind of synthetic or technological things. It's not to say there can't be benefit there, but we are kind of a, whatever we do ends up often being a poor imitation of what we could actually be benefiting from if we were actually connecting and honoring you know, the natural resources that we actually have. Yeah, we make a pharmaceutical that may actually cause other problems even, well, and yet there's a natural way we can find another way to do it. Well, for example, we're hearing so much about antibiotic resistance, but it turns out that the newest antibiotics are being developed from soil microbes and there's not a problem of resistance when you use these so- this soil microbe. This is probably something coming up the pike very soon. Mm. Similarly, essential oils are, are now being touted and being investigated, again, for antibiotic-resistant um, MRSA. You know, everyone's very nervous about this uh, MRSA. Yeah, right. And there's actually benefits from essential oils because plants are very complex. Soil is very complex. Humans cannot approximate that level of complexity, but our bodies respond to it. In fact, a BYU researcher is using other viruses, 14 or so viruses, that uh, are already on our bodies to actually combat MRSA. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when they all combine, they'll combat MRSA if, if we could just get out of the way. <laughs> it's well, amazing. Exactly. Exactly. It's just, it's a. I think it's a. It's a powerful idea, and I, maybe it's one of those things where you need a pediatric neurologist and a mother, and somebody who loves nature to to have this convergence to to teach us the rest of this stuff. What else can we do? It's just a mom, a dad, you know, that that are listening out there, a grandparent. Um, what what's your final recommendation? We have a, about one minute left. What where should we start? Get the book. Go to the dirt. Uh, go to dirtcure. dot com. Um, then what? Well, I think reading labels of food and making sure that you know you're eating as much unprocessed food as possible. And that I go into quite a bit in the book um, because we need to nourish kids so that their bodies have the tools. Children are great at healing themselves. All of us are really, but we have to have the tools to do it. And that really comes almost entirely from the things that we talked about, and food is one of those things. So whole, fresh, unprocessed food, as unprocessed as possible. And, um, you know, also not being afraid if your kid gets a fever occasionally. It's actually important for the body. Don't interfere as long as you see, you know, if it's a brand-new baby or the child looks incredibly toxic, you know, for sure you need to get them checked out right away. But beyond that, you know, you let the kid have their fever, you support them, you give them soup, you keep them comfortable and let their body actually have that experience because the immune system and the body's always learning and yeah. it's important. Yeah. And, and yeah. And be there. You can be there. It's not like neglect. 
pay yeah, attention. Exactly. I mean, that's what it is. We're all so neurotic, like, yeah, but I don't want him to. But the suffering, it's just like everything else. Let him stress. Let let it, A little stress can help. Yes, exactly. A little stress on the system. Well, we appreciate your work, uh, Dr. Maya Sheetreet Klein and the book The Dirt Cure. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Great job. Keep up the great work. Uh, go uh, look up dirtcure.com. Wonderful resource. And go look at the pictures on the site. That's what you can do with a camera in nature is actually get out in nature. Um, Don't just be thinking about how you can get the picture up on Facebook, but go notice what you're noticing and spend some time out there. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Remember, helping you uh, live longer, one of the goals of the show, and apparently a little dirt every day will help. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Isn't it interesting when you just start uh, hearing the latest research um, about nature? I I find it so amazing that we have this incredible earth, and yet we we place all of our faith in a presidential leader, for example, or in a major manufacturer of a phone— or even in the medical profession. But instead, and then we all just overlook the earth. And a spoonful of dirt has healing uh, bacteria, microorganisms that are like, you know, one of the better SSRIs, one of the better antidepressants. In the dirt. And people that are in the dirt regularly, working in the dirt regularly, have benefits from that. We don't, we, I mean, think of how many people have been diagnosed with ADHD. It's going up by leaps and bounds. Jumped nearly 50% diagnosis of ADHD. And yet we have more and more technology, more and more benefits people are more having more money there's less crime one in 45 children now carry an autism diagnosis one in 13 children now suffer from food allergies it, mother nature it's there listen to this though the guy's going to blow up this whole hour with one story a london man with a plan his goal was to hit all of London's 46 McDonald's locations in 24 hours and chronicle his journey for YouTube. He starts off with a bang, getting in seven, a solid seven breakfasts, chowing down breakfast burritos, pancakes, McMuffins, anything else that his heart desired. At about a dozen visits, he admits to finally uh, feeling full and celebrates by going for a Happy Meal to honor his inner child. As the night gets on, he hops on a rentable bicycle, goes through the drive-thru on two wheels, much to the chagrin of the customer in the car behind him. Ben, quit eating. Quit eating, bud. Chew with your mouth closed. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. right. No big deal. 
But anyway, by the end of the day, it's spent $130 on his McMarathon, he's calling it. But he's smiling as he eats his 46th order. He says, I've learned all about parts of London I didn't know about, foods I didn't know about, and areas of my body that I didn't know I could feel pain. Interesting stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. It's so easy to just think, yeah, that's just bad. It's just bad. No, it's science. It's advancement. It's progress. Well, yeah, but they're just destroying the earth. I'd love to get somebody that just is against fracking. To, to sit down with a guy like Dr. Morris and explain why. Well, there's earthquakes. Okay, do, why are the earthquakes happening? Because you're pumping water into the ground. Okay, explain it. So we have this tendency to have an opinion without a lot of information. And to have an opinion is great, I guess. But to have no information, you know, it's kind of a pretty empty opinion. So one of the things we might want to do is formulate your opinion with information and with education and not just information and education that comes from the one side that you love, the pro-oil or the anti-oil people, the environmentalists, but just learn. Did you know that you can drill horizontally and did you know you can drill horizontally for a mile and a half? Do you remember when those guys were caught in the Chilean mine? They were drilling, you know, diagonally. That is pretty cool. You can drill at any angle. That's great. Someday that'll pay off when you're stuck in a mine, right? Anyway, let's just get informed. That's one of the big reasons we want to do the show is just give you more information. You can always, you know, hate fracking. Or you can also just understand that that fracking – wasn't just destroying Mother Earth. It was also employing a lot of people. And it was finally creating security for some some families that didn't have it. Well, yeah, but it was also making a bunch of oil companies rich. Sure, okay, sure. And can we do it better? Absolutely. But it's there's there's this this give and take as we just learned between the costs and and you know, the benefit. And sometimes it costs money to have oil. And the mere fact that in the United States we're sitting on so much oil, shell, oil shell, that for years we have never been able to access the oil in the shell, yet we're sitting on so much of it, and yet we're so dependent on fuel historically from other places, even to the point that wars were maybe started. You know, I guess a little fracking and learning about it it's helpful. It's probably – we were probably fairly blessed to all have landed on this country with so much oil and shell. Doesn't mean we need to exploit the earth and it doesn't mean we need to hate the companies that are providing it for us. Make sense? It just seems like a more moderate view. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. If we are going to take on the idea that 70 percent of the – 
workforce in the United States is disengaged, there's obviously something that uh, is not working right, right? So we have to figure out what that is. And I guess I could just go in and coach a company or work with a company to figure out what's going on with their people. Or we could just, on the radio, try to help you figure out what's going on with you. What is it that's driving you or not driving you? And obviously, in Nikki's case, where she talks her boss from a 40-hour work week down to a 32-hour work week, took a little pay cut. But in the end, I think what she also did is she ended up basically – she knew what she was into. She knew what her driver was. She knew what moved her and what pushed her along. And I worry that many of us don't have a clue. We don't have a clue what our drivers are. So here's a little activity that I want you to to just kind of walk through with you and I want you to think about. Think of a situation when you feel that you are at your very, very best. Think of like a scenario where you uh, you have got your game on and you're nailing it, right? So as you think about it, who are the people that you're with in that situation? Are the people – is it kind of people-centric where it's the people you're with that make it so valuable and incredible? Or what are you doing in the situation? Are you at work? Are you performing a leadership function? Are you – you know, what are you doing? And what emotions are you feeling as you are doing this activity? It's a very basic thing. What may, where are you at your very best? Well, I'm in front of the TV watching myself some Matlock and eating some Cheetos. Okay. All right. Let's dig a little deeper then. Because <laughs> if that is your ultimate goal is just to get away from work and life so you can get to TV to watch your Netflix binge, um, then we might be missing something. Right, We might be basically missing what your driver is. Maybe your driver is to no longer be in the stressful workplace. But there's a reason why when people retire, their likelihood of uh, living longer starts to decrease and their ability to be healthier even decreases. We would think just being free from work would make us healthier, but that's not always the case. So we've got to figure out what the drivers are. Are the drivers the people around you? Are the drivers your opportunity to be creative and imaginative and inventive? Is it just being more optimistic? Sometimes work might be a difficult place for you because the people around you aren't optimistic. It's so doom and gloom, so negative. Maybe one of your drivers is to have just more playfulness or have a, a more spiritual connection to something, and you're not getting that at work. So you've got to figure out what it is that moves you. And as you look through the people that you're with and the activities you're doing, what are what's specific about the activities? What drives that activity to be so valuable to you? What is it that you are doing in that activity? Are you more creative? Are you more in a leadership role? Are you more um, you know, with people and engaging other people? Because whatever you're doing, it's telling something about you, right? It's telling you that I need to go be – I need to go be with people more. And I sit too much in my cubicle and this job is great, but it's not – I'm not where I need to be. 
Because if we can discern what the drivers are, for example, about being with people, then we could actually take what you do every day and start to say, how can I now engage more people at my work? It might simply be you're in a rut. You're in a habit of not talking to people in your office because, you know, you move from sales to customer support and you spend so much time on the phone talking to people that are angry that you never get to talk to the people around you. That might be why it's valuable to cut eight hours out of your workday so you don't have to do that as much. Or you've got to figure out a way to engage people. Maybe start taking lunches with the people around you. Um, once you kind of know the people driver and the the uh, action or the pattern driver. For example, I'm noticing, and it took a year and a half probably to get used to it, but the early schedule of the show is just hard for me. I don't think, I don't think our creator wants us up this early to do this show. Creator as in Don Schlein or God? Yeah, Don Schlein. Okay. No, the real creator. And he doesn't want us up this early. Don wants us up. But it's hard. It's a hard thing for me. And but then I thought, well, what did I used to do during this time? And it was just sleeping. <laughs> Wasted time. But man, it allows me to do what I love to do. And it allows me to be with people that are great. And it allows me to engage my emotions and my feelings in a healthier way. So it's kind of worth it, right? It's worth it. But in the end, that's a decision every one of us needs to make. What drives you? Do you feel like you're using your best gifts? How do you want to be remembered? These are all questions that you could be asking yourself. At your funeral, what would you want everyone to say about you and how you worked? What do you want your kids to say about what you contributed to in your professional life. I remember hearing at my grandfather's funeral what a great man he was. He built a company, but also how many lives he helped, how many people, how many families he took care of, of his employees that had had problems or, you know, this was back before the day where everyone was insured and in a mining company. What do you want your family to say about you and how you worked and how you changed lives? These are all questions that can help you get deeper into what drives you and what motivates you. Just go start uncovering it and see what it teaches you. And then let's see if we can't start adapting our life a little bit more to it. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. minutes what's the worst thing if you hit the snooze three four five times do you sometimes feel like a professional procrastinator you just have a strange knack for putting things off sidestepping responsibility leaving it all until next week hmm well you're definitely not alone some researchers say that procrastination has more than doubled in the last 30 years So how do we get out of the rut of procrastination? Our guest today, Dr. Tim Pitchell, author of Solving the Procrastination Puzzle, joins us now from Ottawa, Canada, to give us some tips on beating the procrastination bug. Dr. Tim Pitchell, welcome to the show. 
Yeah, good morning, Matt. Good to have you back. This is um, one of my favorite subjects, sadly. It is mine, too. For 20 years, it's been my favorite subject. I know, but you don't procrastinate, do you? Actually, I, I kind of don't anymore. It's, wow. Uh, yeah, I know. It's, I it's envy not you. because it's any virtue on my part. It's because these strategies are sort of ingrained in me, and I can't. I have no wiggle room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and plus everybody's now watching you. Right? Well, there's some truth in that, especially my children. It's yeah. hard to live with doctor procrastination. You know what? I was looking at your Facebook page. You're a musher, too. I am. I've been running dogs for as many years as I've been running, well, even longer than I have been studying procrastination. That's amazing. I mean, I guess, too, that's that's an interesting little hobby because you can't procrastinate your dog on your dogs, right? I mean, they'll die. Well, that's it, and I have horses as well. If I told you what what I do between 5.30 in the morning and 8.30 in the morning, you'd think I was done for the day. <laughs> it's, it's pretty scheduled, but you know, at the same time, it's, what, it's, it's driven by my values. So as much as some of these things are chores, like moving manure or picking up dog droppings, it's all part of things that matter to me. Hmm. So, I mean, and that's, I guess that's, that's a great motivator, right? Your value system should be, I guess, your, your consistent anchor. That's a really important point you've made. It doesn't mean I always feel motivated. Like, I really don't like this. It's really cold up here. Well, it's not oh, actually I bet. cold right now. It's below freezing, at least, and we've got lots of snow on the ground, not as much as we typically do. So for me to pick up horse droppings around the barn and I try to keep that area clean, I have to scrape them first with a shovel and then pick them up with a fork. I do not enjoy it. Ugh. There's no way I feel motivated ever. And so I have to use all of the strategies that I've learned from my research and write about to be able to do that. And, of course, once I do it, it, it really primes the pump for feeling good. But don't imagine for a minute that I walk around in a hyper state of motivation. I don't. And I think that's kind of one of the myths that we all walk around with is that I have to feel like it. That's why I love the song you started with. Yeah. I don't feel like I don't want to. Yeah, that's the whole story. I mean, we could stop the interview right now. Yeah, <laughs> we're done. That's the story of procrastination. We have that six-year-old in us that says, I don't want to. I don't feel like it. <laughs> I don't it. feel like it. Yeah. But it's true. And it. so what? You don't you don't feel like picking up the droppings, and you do it because you have a higher purpose, I guess. Well, maybe. I think that I also just have these little strategies by saying, well, okay, I do want the droppings picked up. If I didn't have that commitment to it, I could let them pile up. But then there are costs to that, like the springtime would be a mess. And so sooner or later, you pay the price. So I do right. know that. But so I'm walking out to the barn, and I could say to myself, oh, I, I won't pick them up today. I'll pick them up tomorrow. I'll feel more like it tomorrow. That's just the common saying. And I'm never going to feel like it. I never feel like picking up those droppings. So it's always the question of, okay, if I was going to pick up the droppings, what would I have to do right now? Well, on my way into the paddock, I need to grab that wheelbarrow. I can do that. I can grab the wheelbarrow. Hmm. You see, I'm, I'm just taking baby steps towards it. So then I bring the wheelbarrow into the paddock and I bring some sweet feet out for the horses and I walk some hay over the pasture. And I like that. I have to say, I like the walk over to the pasture. And then I come back, and the horses are heading over to the pasture, and there's the wheelbarrow looking at me. Yeah. So I think, okay, well, you know, I'll just, I'll just do a little bit around the back. I, I always just try to set the bar low yeah. because otherwise it's overwhelming if I think I've got to pick it all up. No, just get started. And that's my number one go-to. I always say, if I was going to do this, what would I do? Okay, I can do that. I'll just get started. And then the magic happens, and it's truly magical when you go from – living in your head with all those negative emotions to just doing a little bit. It's, I guess that's almost inertia, right? You just got to get going. Yeah, there's so much truth in that, but so much of it is just in our heads. Yeah. It's, we're, you know, we play these terrible games. I, 
early, early on in my research in this, and this is back in the 90s, my students and I, before smartphones were even on campuses, we put pagers on all these students and we paged them throughout the day. And certainly early in the week when they had something due and they weren't doing it, they'd say, oh, I work better under pressure or I'll feel more like doing it tomorrow. And the great thing about following up through the week, it was that finally we get to a point where they're actually doing what they said they were supposed to do. And now none of them were saying, well, I'm so glad I waited till the last minute because I worked better right. under pressure. That didn't happen. Instead, they said, like, this isn't as bad as I thought. In fact, what we saw was a statistically significant difference in their ratings of difficulty and stress. Now, it didn't mean it wasn't a little stressful and it wasn't difficult, just it wasn't the monster they created at the beginning of the week that sort of paralyzed them. And so that's what happens when we just get started. We realize this isn't as bad as I thought. And the other thing that other researchers have shown us is that progress on a goal fuels our well-being. It's an upward spiral. Oh, really? So just getting started starts to fuel that magic thing. And that's why that notion of priming a pump is so appropriate. Just a little bit of water in the pump is necessary to get the pump to have some pull. Yeah. And I didn't didn't realize, though, that it really – I mean, just any progress on it tends to, I guess, create a sense of maybe well-being. Again, I mean, you feel better. Absolutely. And that's why – you know, a, a very big task. You're not necessarily going to finish it today, but you find a way into it. Uh, I, I really don't like writing letters of reference. It's my common example because they're high stakes for the students I'm writing for or for employees, and they're very difficult for me because I have to find the right words and I mm-hmm. have to make sure that I'm writing to the right audience. And so it's something for me to I, I'll just get this negative feeling about, oh, i got to write that letter of reference. And I'll say, okay, I'm not going to write that letter of reference, but if I was going to, what would I do first? Well, I have to open up the email from the student and see who it's for. Oh, open up the email and read that. I could do that. And you see where that's going. Yeah, now, yeah. now I'm actually on task, even though I didn't say I was going to do it. So I read it and I say, okay, now if I was going to write this letter, but I don't really want to, what would be the next step? Well, I just have to open a blank, blank piece of letterhead and copy and paste that address for the university over there. Oh, I could do that. I can do that. Yeah, and and you know what? That's so true. Uh, David Allen, who's written the wonderful books amongst many, you know, getting things done, he captures it so well when he says, "What's the next action?" Because we don't do projects, we do actions. Right. So I always ask myself, "What's the next action?" And that's you know that's the bottom line for us. And then what that does though is it takes me out of all that rumination, all those right. negative thoughts I'm having. We just get we get stewing in our own juices, and of course we want to escape that. And we escape it by putting it off. Mm. And that's where procrastination has a lot in common with, say, gambling or overeating. One day you'll realize, you know, I'm not eating the second row of cookies because I'm hungry. (laughs) I'm eating these because there's something else going on here. And it's the same with procrastination. The something else that's going on there is I'm trying to find a way to cope with all these negative feelings. Well, one of the ways to cope with all those negative feelings is just let them go. Like they're they're just there and they're alive and well in us and we're not going to it's like stopping to think trying to stop to thinking about a white elephant you don't do that you can't repress it you just got to look past it let it go and go on in spite of that and you can do that by just asking yourself the question like and getting into an action yes just get doing something i mean the, i mean the minute you're doing an action your brain probably starts thinking different thoughts to manage the action yeah. Oh, yeah. And you stop thinking. Sometimes that's the most important. Oh, yeah. That's true, huh? Right. You're you're into doing and not thinking. So a lot of us will put off doing health behaviors. Like so, you've bought a new exercise machine of some sort, whether it be in a stationary bicycle or an elliptical trainer, and there it sits. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of money on it, and it's starting to collect dust. 
And it's because you look at it and go, oh, I don't have the energy. I don't feel like it. As if you're supposed to feel like right. it. This whole notion of, and, and the thing is, no, I'm just going to go stand. With the elliptical. <laughs> I'm just going to stand there and I'm going to start moving my legs. Just set the threshold low. Now, the, the irrational thing, the crazy thing about people is that like 10 minutes later, I think I'm an Olympic athlete. Right? Yeah, that's right. I am incredible. I'm into it. And, and that's, but that's the great thing. I mean, the magic happens when you lower the threshold and you say, no, I just have to get started here. I don't have to think about sweating or working out till I throw up, or I don't have to think about having to do five workouts this week. Just right now, I'm just going to stand on the machine and move my legs. And <laughs> so much of our lives, we need that. And, you know, there's an old Buddhist story of the monk who's seeking enlightenment, the novice, and he goes to the master and he says, Master, I've been doing all the meditation, but what do I need to do to achieve nirvana, to achieve my enlightenment? And he looks at him kind of incredulously and says, have you finished eating your rice? And he said, yes. Then, then wash your bowl. <laughs> and, and what I love about that is that it kind of goes right back to the mundane of what David Allen's saying is that what's the next action? Yeah. And, and when you put those two together, the, the light bulb really goes on is that, and that really gets to life, isn't it? Like, yeah. we're, we're temporarily, the only thing that you and I are going to run out of is time. The only non-renewable resource we have in our lives are t- is time. And then what's the next thing I have to do? Like, that's, that's the enlightenment. That's the wisdom. That's, this is your life, man. What is it the next thing in front of you? And do it and don't make more of it than that. And oh. I, I, find that, I find that so um, uplifting at one level and freeing. You yeah, know, freeing. It really is freeing. You know, when I come in from doing my chores, it, there's a sense of wholeness that that's what I was supposed to do. Yeah. Isn't that... And and again, it's such – I love simplicity on the far side of complexity. Like I yeah. love it when you finally get to that thing. It really is – it's just what will you do now? What's the next act? What's – and oh, oh, and yeah. we, we could, we, a lot of us get consumed in action that isn't meaningful too, right? So you're not, you're not saying you're, – you're saying get to the next meaningful act. Yes. Or, and actually, or, or necessary act. Necessary act, or even just any act related to the thing that I have to do. Yeah, that, yeah, that matters to you. Yeah, yeah, because you, yeah. But uh, like, don't like, don't that. go get into. I don't know. Don't go just keep watching another segment of Netflix. Oh, well, there's a the bottomless pit for you. In fact, talk about you, that. Why? Why is it the last thirty years that we're falling more into procrastination? I'm assuming it's Netflix. We've got to blame well, someone. It's all of our technology, our yeah. handheld devices. You know, uh, when we used to get bored, we attend or attend to something. And then it would get boring too, but mm-hmm. you know, there, there's nothing like the internet. To it's a bottomless pit of <laughs> one click to another, and you start you start with really saying, "Well, okay, I'm going to work on this, but it'll only take me a minute to check my email." Now the problem with that is that a minute later we face the same decision, and then three hours later we wonder why it is we're watching cat videos again. <laughs> right? And and the, the reason was is that we never really made the decision to leave our work. We said it'll only take me a minute to update my Facebook status. That's true. Or to send out one tweet. But then you say, it'll only take me a minute to see what so-and-so has done. Oh, it'll only take me a minute to check that link that so-and-so has sent. Mm-hmm. And now you don't even know where you are. You're, the other thing about the Internet is that it has no spatial uh, locators for you. You, know, you. you just get lost in it. So having these devices is really difficult for us. And to the point now we know we're killing each other on the roads because we think we're multitasking. We can't put the thing down. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, we are um, endangering our attention that way. And uh, the bad news is we do have to shut it off. 
Right? The first thing we need to do often to get other things done is to reduce the distractions, and that's such an unpalatable thing to say to people. Oh, totally. No, yeah. yeah. And, and I, it's I'm hard. I'm reaching for my phone before I realize I'm reaching for my phone. No, exactly. Yeah, and and so. it's and it's so it's just so habitual. Like it's we think once we have a free space, grab the phone. Yes, grab or even phone. if we don't have a free space. Yeah, right? that's true. Make it. We, we, we've we've it um, it gives us an immediate pleasurable response. I liked what you said a few minutes ago, Matt, about how uh, something so complex can uh, be so simple. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we could talk about procrastination from a neuroscientific perspective. Although the neuroscience is far from complete, we could start talking about how the limbic system of the brain is the oldest evolutionary part, and it's all about feeling, and we have these quick feelings, and then we have this new evolutionary part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, and that's the planful organizational part. And just this week in science, actually, there's a journal article showing that there might be a, a gene that's being expressed that's changing the pruning of the synapses in the prefrontal cortex that might lead to schizophrenia. Oh, yeah. there's, there's this really complex story about what makes us human, but the way you and I experience it is, I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like it. Really. I don't feel like And it really does like go back to the three-year-old or the four-year-old. It absolutely does. And in my house, that's why it's hard to be the son or daughter of Dr. Procrastination. <laughs> I look at my son and, or my daughter and say, I didn't ask you how you felt or that's what right. you want to do. You know, my dad said that, and he wasn't even a Ph.D., <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I think we all—it's just—it's that wisdom. That's why I think you resonated to that. Like I like it when it gets down to simple truth. It's so true. You how you, what you feel like. It's time to pick up. The That's food. right. Just get moving. Yeah, try to go. To, time to shovel out the the barn. Yeah. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Tim Pitchell. Tim, let's take a break. Come back. I want you to get into your book, um, solving the procrastination puzzle. Keep sure. giving us some tools for how we we kind of chunk it down and and make life. You know, get over the feeling of it all and get into, let's just do what we need to do. Um, It's interesting. It sounds almost antithetical to a healthy life, but it really is about getting moving and getting stuff um, that matters to us accomplished. Stick with us, folks. We'll continue the discussion after the break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Don't wake me. I plan on sleeping in. Now, that's the deal. If you're going to plan it, then you're just delivering on your plan of sleeping in. But if you pretend like you're going to get up and go feed the horses, like Dr. Tim Pitchell's teaching us, then guess what? You're probably procrastinating if you're now going to plan on sleeping in. Joining us is Dr. Tim Pitchell, and um, he's the author of the book Solving the Procrastination Puzzle. He joins us now from a chilly, frigid Ottawa, Canada. Dr. Tim, welcome back to the show, my friend. Thanks very much, Matt. I really uh, I love your expertise in this. And I love, I mean, you're making it simple and it's human nature. And um, you started the show uh, last break about the fact that it's a value. If, if we have a value, you use your value system, you said, to make these hard decisions. Mm-hmm. And... So one of the things I keep, I guess, running into with this idea of procrastinating is it's it's almost – I don't know what you call it, but it seems like some of us are procrastinating doing important things and um, we're actually not being – we're not even acting. We're not being busy um, in life and some of us are actually 
seeming busy and active, but we're still not doing important things. Yeah, we can't admit to ourselves that we're not doing the important things. I remember last year I was walking across campus and a colleague from another department came up to me around 5 p.m. I was just heading to the parking lot and he said, Tim, you got to tell me what's wrong with me. I've been busy all day doing stuff, but there's one thing that's, that's due today and I still haven't done it and I'll be up till midnight now. Why did I do that to myself? Yeah. And so here's a very accomplished person and yet he fell prey to that. I'll be busy, but he, he was still doing the avoidance. And that's because he wouldn't break the ice on just getting started on that really important task. He was dodging it emotionally. So that's all. We're always going to have to come back to that in this conversation that procrastination is an emotion-focused coping strategy. It's not about time management. It's about getting past our reluctance, our, re- our own internal resistance to it. Hmm. Yeah, so we can appear really busy. But that busyness can be just a big scam to keep us away from the task we're really supposed to be doing. It's an emotion-focused coping strategy. And so your problem isn't the task. Your problem is the barrier of your aversion to the task. Your your thoughts about, feelings about that task. And those are often non-conscious, like you're having this emotional response that happens really quickly. Even just the thought of the task makes you cringe. Yeah. I, I've, I've met people from all walks of life having done this for so long, whether it be lawyers or judges or salespeople, but salespeople in particular, you know, might be the cold call. Yeah, make the call, really. make the call. And, and they'll say, yeah, I'm just avoiding that. And I'll say, okay, so how are we going to set it up so you get started? And, and, you know, earlier on we talked about the fact that things can be really complex, but we can keep them simple. Uh, behind a lot of this is science and theory, so we can talk about event segmentation theory, where we cognitively have lots of scripts about how things unfold, like even about how, what we do when we have a shower, what we do when right. we brush our teeth. And so for a long time I wasn't uh, flossing my teeth. I'd brush my teeth all the time, and I had my bedtime routine for brushing my teeth, but I couldn't seem to stick flossing in there. And the same sorts of principles of how I got to start flossing my teeth can then be applied to someone making a cold call. And so I set myself up to floss my teeth by making this pre-commitment, something called an implementation intention, because you wanted to talk about strategies. Yeah. So this implementation intention, this pre-commitment is that it's a simple thing. It's a sentence we can all encode right now, when then or if then. So when I pull out my toothpaste, because I always did that, that was a habit, then I will put the floss on the counter. Mm. When I put down my toothbrush, then I will pick up the floss. You know, yeah. it sounds so silly and simple, but it was life-changing. But do you write a script like that? I mean, do you really like think through your morning routine and say, when I hang my towel up, then I will whatever? Well, that's interesting, you know, and this is where it gets complex in the research because the, one of the best papers on event segmentation theory talked about the shower script and that sometimes it's not best to insert things like toothbrushing into your shower script. It just doesn't fit. They don't yeah. jive. It's, it's, yeah. and so it might not even be hygiene, hygienic. It might be that's unhealthy. Right. It gets nuanced. Yeah. But you, you could, and one of the reasons for that, again, the, the science shows is that people with better prospective memories, people who can remember things better, don't need signs. But some of us need to put a little sticky mm-hmm. note on it. My daughter, for example, I really wanted her to learn to type because she struggles with um, language. So she's a really bright kid, but language, she don't get along. It's not her forte, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm jacking up the, the rewards, and she, I know she wants a, an iPhone. She hasn't ever had an iDevice. Said, I'm happy to buy you one, but you have to be able to touch type. Oh, Dad, I can't do it. I'll fail because she feels that way all the time. I I said, 
if you just come home every day from school in 20 minutes, do this program, in a couple months you'll be touch typing. But I won't even remember this is the issue. So I said, and what she's going to face today, it's funny you raise this today, when she comes home, she's going to see a sign on the closet door, she's <laughs> going to see a sign in the kitchen that says, Laurel, go do your 20 minutes. Yeah. And so some of us do need that sticky note. But I want to go back to the issue both of the salesman and the cold calls and me flossing my teeth. So I'm picking up, now I'm putting down my toothbrush and I've made this pre-commitment. I'm picking up the floss, but don't think for a minute I want to. I, I'm got, already I'm coming up with a million excuses. I don't feel like it right. tonight. I'll just skip tonight. You know, it, I'll feel more like it tomorrow. Like, these habits are hard. Like, we have this, uh, this uh, immediate visceral response to, I don't want to do it. It took me months, and now I can't imagine not going to bed without flossing my teeth. You know, finally, mm. it's become the prepotent response. So anybody that's struggling with some part of their lives, that it may be that aversive cold call, you have to set it up around some routine you already have going for you. And then, and then stick it in there. Yeah. You're just picking up the phone and dialing the, the one number. So, yeah, these are the tricks that uh, Peter Galwitzer from New York University has done an extensive amount of work on this notion of implementation intention. Yeah. Shown in numerous studies that just making this pre-commitment of when then putting the stimulus for action out in the environment is a game changer too. If, it's, it's, if you're committed. Well, yeah. And, and, but it also, what's I think fascinating about this is the, you, it's a, this is a process of becoming a stronger human. You're every one of these tasks, it's just flossing your teeth for heaven's sakes, mm-hmm. but you've made a commitment and, and you've actually, and you're keeping it. And now in you've a bit, I guess, habituated it. You've it's, it's now you. Yeah, and that and isn't that true? That, that the existentialists argue that we are what we do. Yeah, you know, we're always facing these choices. Am I going to be the guy who watches ten more episodes on Netflix, or am I the guy that's just going to go and do yoga for twenty minutes, or go for the run, or whatever it is that we think that that we're striving for in our lives? You hmm. know? And we can choose to sit still, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's funny that when you said, you know choosing to stay in bed. There's many mornings when choosing to stay in bed is the right thing. Right. You were up, up late last night uh, for work or because your kids were sick. Well, the sleeping in it makes perfect sense. It's when you don't get out of bed when the alarm's going off and that your intention was to get up that now what's going on here? Why are you becoming your own worst enemy? This... I, I heard just this week on the radio there's a new alarm clock that you can't shut it off until you stand on the carpet. <laughs> and you have to stand on the carpet for three seconds. Holy cow. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it works, I guess. I guess so. But, you know, the old version of that was the same notion of the pre-commitment of you realize you keep hitting the snooze button, so you put the alarm across the room. Right, right, exactly. So there isn't a snooze button within reach. Now, again, that pre-commitment requires some action, and then you get uh, the secondary procrastination. You know, yeah. The second-order procrastination is I procrastinate putting the clock across the room. So we can continue to be our own worst enemy even when we know these things. Oh, do you, um, in a weird way too, it seems like this parallels other uh, theory, like about, even about anxiety. Um, a lot of us uh, that have anxiety, we, the feeling, we think the feeling matters hmm. and we believe the feeling more than the logic behind it or what else we know. So we end up talking about everything like our teachers that are stupid, that don't understand us and they always give us too much homework instead of getting down to the root cause of the anxiety. Yeah. And then, and when we realize that anxiety 
we poke at that a little bit, and that's what we can do in a good therapeutic relationship. And I'd always encourage people to consider that if you're bothered by your anxiety or some of your irrational fears, and certainly procrastination can result from fear of failure that's quite irrational, is you have to poke at some of those and say, what would be the worst thing if? And then you realize that it's, it's, you're making it up. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not real. And that's really the back end of the power of getting started. That's what we learned in that research earlier, that students say, gee, when I got started on this, it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it would be. Right. And that's often the case. We make these things bigger on our own minds. But some of us, that's where we need to start, because we spend a lot of time ruminating and making these very negative places for ourselves. And so there's a therapy called uh, acceptance commitment therapists who work very much on that, about how to accept the negative emotions and pain in your life, but still move forward, even though, yeah, that's alive and well in your brain. It's not going away, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you, that's kind of ingrained there now. And if you think you're going to get rid of it in a couple of days, it's not going to happen. But can you learn to live with it and, and move past it? Absolutely. Is, is, where does willpower play into this? And well, and is that I mean I know there's some interesting research on willpower, but mm-hmm. what what I mean that's really all you're saying when you're going to go make a pre-commitment. It's I guess you're engaging will to some extent, but then you got to watch about how often you draw on willpower because the best research we have by Roy Baumeister and Diane Tice and others out of Florida State and all their colleagues is that it's a bit of a limited resource. We can exhaust it pretty quickly, and so when you're going to use it, use it strategically. That kind of comes back to Mark Twain's famous statement, if your job is to eat a frog, then eat it first thing in the morning. It's going to get harder. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and even, uh, so Mark Twain on the one hand, and we got Viktor Frankl, the mm. famous Viennese psychiatrist on the other, who spent time in a Nazi concentration camp. He said the same thing, that, you know, I've learned to do the difficult things first and get them out of the way. So th- that came from, in life, learning that, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to have the energy at the end of the day. I'm, I'm going to be worn out. And psychologically, we call that no more willpower, but we just feel it as a lack of energy. Mm. So we do have to use it. Willpower, you asked the question of how does it come in? Well, we have some. It's a limited resource. We have to use it strategically um, to go back to Mark Twain's uh, quote, if you know, if you have a job is eat a frog, eat it first thing in the morning. If your job is two frogs, eat the biggest one first. <laughs> and I think most of us feel that way about our lives sometimes. Okay, right. On my desk are a whole bunch of frogs. <laughs> yeah. Now I better start with the biggest one because once I got that one down, the rest are going to seem easy. That's so true. What, what, is, what of this is about personality? Like, well, I mean, some people, I just know, I have people in my life that they eat dirt just because it's good for them. And I, I sit there and I'm a little more free flow. That's the story I tell. But um, in the end, is, is, is some of this just personality? Some people just are always going to be on time. Or is it, is it changeable, I guess? Well, personality is kind of what's bred in the bone. And so it's changeable to a point. We can act out of character. But for those of us who are not very conscientious, that means we're not very dutiful by nature or organized. And this is a major personality trait that 50% is heritable. Like hmm. genetics show us that, yep, a lot of this comes from mom and dad. It's, it's not easy to change. It's, it's our go-to sort of way of being in the world. We have to lay strategies on top of it. And we can act out of character, but that takes a bit of willpower in itself. So absolutely, some of us are set up to fail, in terms of if I'm very anxious and neurotic, 
and that I mean that in a personality sense. Yeah. It doesn't mean the the movie sense of neurotic, but that you're prone to depression and worry. If you're not very conscientious and you're impulsive, and then maybe you've internalized a lot of negative expectations from other people, well, there's just the perfect storm yeah. for the procrastinator. So absolutely, many of us are set up to have some inherent weaknesses. But think of any aspect of your life. So you're in a certain sport. You don't have every attribute that necessarily that makes you the best candidate for that sport. You work around it. So yeah, there's there's things there that um, can work against us and other things that can work in our favor. And that's when we think, okay, I'm going to lean on this strategically. Like I'm going to leverage that part of my life because I know this part of my life is a relative weakness. And so for some people it would be, gee, if I want to stop procrastinating or, or do less of it, I've got to become more organized. For another right. person, it wouldn't be organization at all. It would, I, I have to learn to count to ten because I'm so impulsive. Like, as soon as something comes up, I'm gone. And <laughs> so the, the implementation intention becomes, if someone asks me out tonight, if or when, when they ask me out, then I'm going to say, I'll tell you in ten minutes. Because mm. now I'm learning to harness that strategy of implementation intentions around a predisposition to be impulsive. So you can still lay on these strategies, but you're right, Matt. Some of us are prone to procrastinate. And again, but that also can become our great story, <laughs> right? It can, or our great excuse. A great excuse is a better word for it, isn't it? No, oh, it's yeah, so true. Yeah. Well, Dr. Tim, for, you'll read, go ahead. No, go talk about your blog. Yeah, I read a blog for psychology today, and, and two posts ago I wrote about this notion of uh, I am so lazy. What does it mean to say that? And sometimes that can just be a terrible excuse. You just... You're saying that I am this, so therefore I'm excused from all the rest of the things. And it's an inauthentic way of being in the world, is yeah. what I argue. So if those of you who want to talk about personality as being an excuse, you might want to look at that. Uh, yeah, that's a great article. And, and again, your blog, um, your, your website, what's the best way to get to Procrastination Research Group? Well, just procrastination.ca. So you talked about me being up here in the Great White North. Yeah. So if you just remember .ca. it, .ca, not .com procrastination.ca. Well, we appreciate you. Dr. Timothy A. Pitchell, go check out that website. Um, it really, you're, you're a gem, Tim. And uh, every time I talk to you, I feel like I've got hope and I'm jacked up. That's good. But it's, so now, now that's the and. Now I got to go do something. Go start acting. Or you always do, Matt. It's always a dance. It is a so dance, I, isn't I enjoy it? talking with you very much, too. Thanks, Tim. We'll have you back again. And uh, go look him up, too, on Psychology Today. He's... He's everywhere, folks. Oh, and the book, Solving the Procrastination Puzzle. Those are the solutions, those tips that he's been giving us. They're in those books as well and are in that book as well. And on his blogs, he's, he's very abundant in giving the answers and the tools that people need. We're going to take a break, folks. If, uh, if you feel like you, you, you got to get doing something, start thinking about it. What, uh, what, what could you do? Think of the hard thing you got to get done today. If you were going to do that one hard thing, how would you get started? Just go just go do that. Go do that. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, I love talking with Dr. Tim Pitchell. It really, uh, everybody, we've all got it, don't we? And then we, we use our stories and we use our history and our personalities as excuses. 
on why we procrastinate. But as he taught us, what it really might just simply come down to is make the commitment to to get to break the barrier, break that barrier by acting. What's the next act? What's the next activity, the next action that we need to take? There's so many things um, that we procrastinate, and yet one of his great points was simply the idea that in the end, the only thing you are going to run out of is time. And, you know, you see it. Having just been to a funeral of someone near and dear, you realize, yeah, you don't you don't want to delay and procrastinate the growing of your most important things, the most important relationships to you. Um, and yet, you know, there's also part of our jobs. We love our jobs. They're they're wonderful and yet hard and sometimes not always as motivating. And we may not love it all the time. Um, so we procrastinate. And then we feel bad. And then that, imagine just what that does and how that conjures up other problems for us or fears. So just do what you can today. What's the one thing you know you need to go get done today? Think about it in your head and then ask yourself, okay, so if you were going to get started on that right when you can in a few minutes, um, what's the first thing you do? Well, I'd have to find that phone number. Great. Let's start working on that phone number. Then when you finish that, just ask, what's the next thing you should do? Well, I probably ought to call it. It doesn't have to be, you know, brain surgery, folks. But again, go check out the great uh, work by Dr. Timothy Pitchell. And and one of my favorite sources uh, is Psychology Today. What a great resource it is where you can go read all of his articles. Um, And we can all just grow together. We'll take a break, folks. Come back next hour. More ideas to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. This morning we're talking about failure. Have you ever been there? Have you ever just blown it? Like majorly just blown it. Ah, the embarrassment, the shame. Just the the blow to your game and to your mindset. But the reality of failure, uh, it's everywhere. We all experience it, and uh, to some degree, you need to experience it if you want to be able to progress and to move on in life. Um, one of the reasons why we bring it up is because uh, we seem to be raising a generation of people that, that think that, you know, we ought not let our kids fail too much. The, the problem with that is that's not natural. You're supposed to fail. In fact, quite honestly, you better fail, right? Because failure would mean change. Failure means growth. Failure means it's time to figure something out. Wouldn't you need to have failure to actually know what success is? How many times have you seen uh, one of your children maybe had a really great team, an incredible baseball team or whatever, and they just kept winning and winning and winning and winning and winning? And then, you know, they get to a tournament and they get killed. And (laughs) these kids are not used to failure. 
But failure happens every single day. Uh, think about the first time you played a sport and it was your chance to win the game on the free throw line. Did that ever happen? Ben, for example, in his dating life, nothing but failure. Right, Ben? Oh, you have no idea. No idea right, no idea wrong. So, yeah, my dating life's horrible. Really? You know, let's talk about it just for a minute. What? <sighs> yeah, right? You're breathing through your mouth again. Oh, sorry. So a little failure. I mean, you're not failing dramatically, right? It's just a little failure. Three restraining orders. It's totally fine. Okay, yeah, that's failure. That's boy. Really? I'm just trying to be nice, you know. Is, the th- are the, is that three different people? Um, or is that one person, no, you know, it's three been, different it's orders? No, it's been renewed. Okay, so wow. So one of them's been renewed one time, and then there's a separate one. Yeah, a second yeah. one. Huh. We got to, yeah, that's weird. Maybe you're pushing too hard. Seems like really? you're pushing too hard. I, I just thought, like, confidence was supposed to. <laughs> is that what you do? You act confident, so yeah. confident that you scare them? I guess so. Yeah. Like, See, again, that's a perfect example, Ben. That's why we need failure. You know, the failure to be able to, you know, get a date should teach us something. And there are steps that we need, we should take to help us get through this. There are actual steps that we should learn to make sure that we're not, you know, always just failing. Four Keys to Learning from Failure by Dr. Guy Winch, who's been on the program two or three times he uh, He's a blogger on Psychology Today and um, also uh, has this post that made it to Huffington Post, which is four keys to learning from your failure. Now, Ben, I want you to listen up because yes. we're going to use your dating examples as we go through this um, and also just, you know, the the police interventions, the tasing, the stuff like that as, as a tool to help us through this. Uh, first key that Dr. Winch teaches us in his article, because failure is inherent, right? But there's usually going to be a breakdown that would cause a failure in in a few areas. So the first area is your planning, right? So if you haven't, if you don't plan, if you don't prepare to plan, no, if you fail to prepare, then prepare to fail. That's the axiom. But I, I do plan. Okay. So obviously, let's evaluate your planning. So for these dates that you – like you keep coming in and saying, I, I went – I had another date and she didn't show. Had another date and she didn't show. Had another date and she didn't show. So you must not be planning very well. Well, I tell her specifically, drive yourself to Moab and I will meet you there. Moab, which is hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Yeah, but like she – she okay. could probably find her way. Well, yeah, but did you even does she even know you at this point? Um, I mean, we sat next to each other a couple times in class. Okay, yeah. See, you you have to evaluate your planning because it's a you have to actually know the woman before she'll go to Moab with you. Okay. B, you usually don't like set up a date that's hundreds of miles away unless you really know each other. And so it usually would be better to pick her up Say, hey, let's drive together. Got a bunch of friends that will be down there. We can hang out. There will okay. be a place for the ladies and a place for the gentlemen. What What happens if you don't have a lot of friends that are going to be there? Then we probably ought not be going to Moab with a lady. See, that's where you're losing it. So if we reevaluate your planning, then any breakdown, 
you know, so for the team that didn't win the championship and they were all a little messed up because, boy, that defense that they faced in the championship game blew them away, then we probably didn't plan very well to have our kids ready for any defense. Right? Okay. So it's about a planning problem. So, And we, we are seeing that that's what's happening to your dating. There's just a failure to plan. So planning, I'm going to mark that there. Yeah, planning, we, you have to spend more time thinking about who this person is. She has to actually know you. You probably ought to be on three or four dates before you take her to Moab. Okay, so how how does she get to know me then? Okay, that would be... That would be different. That would be your ex. That would be your um, your execution. So is that step number two? That would be three. Then oh. so so once you have to you have you reevaluate your planning. Did we plan ahead? Then your preparation. Like did you did you date her enough? Did you have your head wrapped around this strongly enough? Were you in the right place? Do you have the communication skills? Do you have the ability to carry a conversation with somebody longer than, you know, 10 minutes? Because if you're going to Moab, it's going to be a long time together. So failure is your inability to be prepared enough. Do you know who she is? Do you know what ladies like to talk about? Do you know what this lady specifically likes to talk about? Yeah. You didn't prepare. Well, I I usually have like – a, like a list of things I can talk about on the car ride. Well, I guess if we're taking separate cars, I would never be able to use those. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, and you don't even have a car. True. So preparation would say that that plan's not going to work. The minute you're like, okay, which car should I take? You don't have a car. So if I buy if I buy a car, I should be good on the preparation side. Right. What would happen if it started raining in Moab? And you found out that there's going to be storms there all weekend. Do you have another plan? You need another. So you got to be prepared because what happens if you guys, you know, what happens if she does have you arrested? Can you post I'm, bail? I'm very prepared on that front, though, on the arrested side. I, I know what to do for that. So what, what our good expert is teaching us is, Dr. Guy Winch, is that if you have a plan, then you got to make sure you're prepared to implement the plan. Right, you got to be able to deliver on the goods. You got to be able to do what needs to be done. So again, the basketball team do we do we have a do we have a plan? Our own game plan. Have I prepared my kids for what could be inevitably changes to the plan? Have we prepared them with other schemes? Have we prepared them? You know, are they in good enough shape? Are they mentally prepared? Do we have all that done? The next tool he teaches is your execution. So it's not enough to just have a really good plan and to have people prepared. Did they execute on what we said we were going to do? And see, if you don't, after the date, go back and learn this, Ben, then you're just going to keep having the same dates over and over. Is yeah. that what you're noticing? Yeah. I, so I, I like plan out what I'm going to say and like how I'm going to ask her out. But a lot of times it turns into German. And so I start talking to – Okay. So no, that's huge. Maybe, yeah, your execution's off. Maybe that's why she doesn't come because I tell her mm-hmm. to meet me in Moab yeah. in German. Well, in fact, you got to watch out for that because Donald's Trump, Donald Trump's people are now saying that Cruz is using Gestapo-type techniques. What does Gestapo mean in German? I don't know. Look that up. But you're probably not executing because when you get nervous, 
you probably go all German on her. That's that's probably true. That makes sense. And I mean, it's like it's not a bad thing to be German on her, but no. like if she, she's she German, no. But if yeah. she's not German, it's a okay. bad thing. So speak in English. I, I've planned in English. Mm-hmm. You've prepared. In, okay. Yeah, we were going to do this whole thing in English. Then the next thing you know, you went off all German on her. Nothing wrong with German. Fantastic thing. But you got you to do better. And then last but not least, of course, after you've evaluated your execution of it, is uh, you got to figure out what of everything we talked about you can control. And you can control your German. You can control your prep. You can control how much you know her. You can control these things. And then focus on what you can change, right? Focus on your variables that you can control. It's an easy plan. It's easy. Four Keys to Learning from Your Failure by Dr. Guy Winch. Stick with us. We'll uh, continue the journey helping you live longer and love stronger, lead healthier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, most of us will never attempt a run of 160 miles. Even less will we be likely to do it through the Namibian desert. But only one person is attempting all of that. And uh, believe it or not, he's going to do it all while being completely blind. Here to discuss his amazing feats as an ultramarathon runner is uh, Simon Wheatcroft. And uh, man, Simon, welcome to the program, my friend. I know. Well, you know, it's my pleasure to be on the show. It's uh, I loved watching the videos about you and your your life and your your work. Now you attempted this race in the Namibian desert, right? And you were unable to finish it the first time. Are you planning to do it again? Yeah, I'm going back. You know, the plans already in motion. I'm, you know, changing the way I train, mixing up a little bit, just so I can go back and try again. You know, the reason I didn't make it essentially is because. Trying to do it alone, yeah. Um, I took a lot of damage um, just running over all the rocks. You know, I like, twisted my knees and my feet, and in the end, I just took too much lateral damage to my leg, and yeah, it stopped me. So now the plan is train up, get used to that lateral damage, go back. Wow, what is it like? In fact, talk to us about how this all started, your running career, because. I mean, you you struggled proposing to your girlfriend, right? Climbing a mountain is that is that talk about that story? It's amazing. Yeah, that's how it all started. Um, a few years ago now, I was over in Yosemite actually, and I was um, attempting to hike up Half Dome. I'd never, you know, hiked up a mountain before or anything. But I thought, you know, how hard can this be? I'll give it a shot. <laughs> I'll get to the top. I'll, I'll propose to my girlfriend. It turned out it can be quite hard. I was sort of slipping and tripping and stumbling a fair bit, and the chance of dying seemed you know, relatively likely. So then I had to make the very difficult decision to quit you know, this attempt just because I couldn't see, and you know, that was something very difficult to live with. I did still propose. You know, we did get married a few weeks later over in Vegas. But then returning to the UK, this idea of quitting just because I couldn't see really plagued me. So then I decided... You know, never to quit again just because I couldn't see. I wanted to push, see what was possible, and I thought, hey, let's see if I can go outside and learn to run alone. Wow. 
But now, um, help me understand, Simon. Uh, how do you run when you can't see? How do you cross the street? How do you make sure you don't run into a, you know, a fire plug? Um, well, you do run into those things. Is, uh, <laughs> do you? Probably the simple answer. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what happened on your journey through the desert, right? Is you kept hitting rocks and bushes, and it just beat you yeah, up. Yeah, you know. You know, I actually managed to run into a flagpole in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> the only flagpole in the entire desert in like 400 square kilometers holy cow and i and i managed to find it so <laughs> that was relatively impressive that is amazing but, um the way i did it uh, the way i learned to train because training and how i did it in the desert you know I, I did it in two very different ways but training was just a case of i paired what it felt like underfoot with some audio distance GPS markers on an app on my phone. Mm-hmm. I was using just a normal fitness app called RunKeeper, which says things like you've run 0.3 miles, you've run 0.6. So I paired what it felt like underfoot with those distance markers, learned when I needed to turn right, when I needed to turn left. When I hit a lamppost or a, a road sign, I'd, I'd remember where that was from the distance markers and make sure I was at the other side of the pavement next time and piece it together over a couple of months, memorized a route, and then just began to train quite heavily on a three-mile route, which I repeated again and again, and I've, well, I've put thousands of miles in on that route now. Wow. And, I mean, it's really, so you've memorized, you've memorized the route, and then, but things change, I guess, like a car might pull up or a dog might be right there. Do these changes, then I guess you just adapt and adjust, and that you don't lose in your mind where you are on the route? Um, I have been hit by a van before. Oh man! Um, on that route, that was that was kind of strange because you need to shake it off really quickly. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm out there on my own. You know, um, if I lose my phone, I've got no real way of contacting anyone. And yeah, it was tough. So yeah, I got hit by the van. I was like, oh, shake it off really quickly, jump back up, you know, brush myself off, and, and carried on. And that's what it is. A lot of the time, you just got to keep moving forward. And to be honest, that particular route, I know incredibly well now mm. so i'd struggle to get disorientated and yeah. if i did it would probably only take me 10 15 seconds to you know find something that i know okay this curb means i'm in this location or you know this particular post okay there's only a post on this part of the road so i can orientate myself very very quickly on that route but you know if I, as soon as i move away from that route yeah, it's very, very good. Oh, and there's this weird experience. I mean, everybody must think you are not, you know, seeing impaired, You're that you're fine because you're out running every day. But in reality, um, you, you can't see. When did, when did, talk about your your blindness. Has it been with you your whole life? Um, it's genetic, um, but it was degenerative. Hmm. So while I was born with it, I could still see when I was young. So, you know, when I was, um, so all the way up to sort of teenage years, you know, it was fine. I didn't even know I was losing my sight, to be honest. It wasn't until sort of went to the hospital, I think it was around 13, 14, that they were like, oh, we really need to take a look at this. There seems to be something wrong here. And then by the time, you know, I'd actually gone through the system and everything, I was already blind, uh, registered blind by 17. Although being registered blind is kind of strange because depending how you've lost your vision, you can still see. So I could see pretty well up until I sort of mid-20s, and then by age 26, 27, that's when, you know, I pretty much lost all what people would class as 
as vision. Now all I have is just above light perception. So, you know, thankfully, having sight when I was younger does mean I've seen a lot of things. You know, I know how much I have space, uh, like a car occupies and tables and chairs. And now I just, when I'm out and about, I make assumptions of how much space something would occupy. Hmm. Sometimes I'm very wrong. <laughs> but, you know, 90% of the time, you yeah. get it right. So you concentrate on the times you get it right. Do you run in the day or do you run at night? I guess it wouldn't matter. Uh, mainly in the day, just because um, logistics, because where I train, <laughs> this is going to sound really strange, but I can't actually get to the start of my run route on my own. Oh, really? Yeah, it's because of where it starts. Um, you can kind of really only get there by car. Um, you can't really walk there. It's a, it's a really long walk. So it, I basically, and my wife's driving to work or she, dropping the kids off in this, but she drops me off in the train. There you go. The and then you just run home. <laughs> well, no, because I can't run home either. So, <laughs> so you got to run. Oh, my heavens. So I'll be out there for, you know, a, a reasonable amount of time and then, you know, get a lift back or, or something like that. But so your training days, if you're if you're going to be a, um ultra marathon runner, it's a it, you run 160 miles is the attempt, right? Yeah, you know I've run further than that. I've run 260 miles before. Um, I ran from Boston to New York, and then when I got to New York, I did the marathon. Oh my heavens! So, yeah, that, that was pretty cool. That was, that was a really nice distance as well. And so yeah, I, I've run you know big distances before. The, you know the desert was just challenging just because you know I couldn't see the rocks more than anything. But um, yeah, training wise, it basically means your weekends are just heavily occupied with training so you'll get up on a saturday you'll run 20 or 30 miles you know you get up on a sunday and you do the same and then through the week you're just throwing in some shorter distances doing some speed and things so if you can sort of be willing to give up four hours on a saturday four hours on a sunday yeah it's uh it's more than manageable you're running a marathon on a saturday and then a marathon pl- and another marathon on a sunday yeah, if I'm in the sort of far end of a training cycle, getting ready for multi-day or long distance, yeah, that's the type of distance I'd cover a weekend. And then when you go run your ultra marathon, do, do you run straight, nonstop, the 160 miles? Um, no, that particular one was a multi-day event. So okay. you also had to survive in the desert for seven days. Yeah. You know, so you had to take all your own food and you sleep and stuff and carry it every day. So that was a, a multi-day sort of distance slash, you know, make it in the desert. Um, whereas I have done distances, you know, single-day distances in the 80 to 100-mile range. Mm. But it, it just depends. Sometimes I'm, you know, going for the biggest distance in 24 hours or a 24-hour race. Other times, you know, I'm doing multi-day where you just get to do a marathon a day for however many days you want to do it. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, to me, it's heroic. Um, let's take a break and come back, Simon. I'd love to find out more about um, just how you how your brain works and how you think. I mean, the deal is that ultramarathoning is one thing, you know, visually impaired, blind is another, and yet you've combined them both. Um, it, it's it's a pretty powerful, I think. Uh, lesson for all of us to learn. We'll take a break. More with uh, Simon Wheatcroft when we come back, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. And uh, Simon Wheatcroft definitely is bringing that to the game. Stick with us. We'll continue this journey right here on the Matt Townsend Show. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you ever just had a friend say, let's go run a marathon? And you're like, ah, oh, I could never do it. How about just running from Boston to New York City, then while you're in New York, run the Boston Marathon, or the, the New York City Marathon? Just do that. And do it blind. Today's guest, Simon Wheatcroft, did just that very thing, along with others. Um, I mean, other uh, long ultra marathons as well. He's he's a runner and has a website, andadapt.com, andadapt.com. Uh, and it's just a great place to go learn as much as you can from this incredible person. Simon Wheatcroft, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Good to be back. Good to have you. What does your wife think of this? Like when when she says, yeah, Simon, you go out into the desert, the Namibian desert, and you just run. Does that does this scare her? Yeah, uh, the desert was particularly a difficult one because I was attempting it so low. It's something she didn't really want to talk to me about. Hmm. She considered it a, a little too risky. So it, it was something that, you know... I gently revealed to her over time. Yeah. <laughs> she she agreed to, but she wasn't particularly happy about me doing it. Oh, sure. But at, at the same time, you know, I think she realized that, you know, if she said no, you know, it had just been a difficult thing to do and I'd have been a bit too upset. So let me do it. And, you know, we put a lot of safety sort of measures in there to make it as safe as possible to yeah. my ease. Is what's harder for you, um, Simon, the the ultra marathoning side of this or the blind side of this? Um, it really depends on the event. Um, for example, the Namibia one. The fact I was trying to do it without vision is what made it particularly difficult. Um, if I was able to see and able to see the rocks and the obstacles, it would have been. I don't want to use the word easy, but it would have certainly been manageable. Hmm. So in that particular one, it was my lack of vision, which um, we had got on top of me. Whereas, you know, all the things like the Boston to New York, uh, I'd say, you know, the distance was starting to get a little bit on top of me because that much sort of running on concrete begins to just physically hurt your limbs. Yeah. Yeah, it depends on the event, you know, um, depends what challenge you're doing. And I think because Namibia was so low, it was always going to be trying to manage the fact I couldn't see while doing the adventure. Do you um, do you consider yourself a hero? I mean, I know that. I mean, I'm sure you you don't think of yourself that way, but you know that there's people that are just amazed by you. Um, I try not to think of it in those terms. You know, I'm just going out there and trying to see what I'm capable of, and. I do understand that I am absolutely pushing the limit to d- to discover these things. And I think some people perhaps do look at that and think, wow, you know, people really can push hard and and do things that are beyond, you know, what perhaps the public perception is. But I try not to think about people's perceptions of me too much. Just, oh, it's very difficult to, <laughs> to yeah. think about those things. Yeah, and, and I guess to even try to live up to it or play the role of it. Who... Who's your hero? Um, it depends in what field, really. You know, I, I absolutely adore technology, so a lot of my the people I would look up to would be some of the big people in technology. But if we're talking about 
fitness or endurance, there's a there's a lady called Rosie Swale Pope, and in her late fifties, she decided one day just to run around the world. Wow! So she left her you know house by the front door, and then took five years, and she ran around the entire world, self-sufficient, carried all her own kit, and that is just to me absolutely incredible. You know, a solo attempt and to dedicate that much of your life to one event just to see if it's even possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she proved it was possible. So, yeah, absolutely incredible. That's pretty neat. Um, is that now stirring in the back of your mind like, hey, <laughs> maybe I could run around the world? I've got two small children. Yeah. And if I was going to dedicate, you know, that much of my life, I'd miss out on a huge portion of their life. And I think that would be way too selfish there is one adventure i would like to take on that would be relatively time consuming but i think i'm willing to dedicate that much time and i'd love to um cycle the pan am highway mm. so cycle possibly. it yeah 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 look at you so i'm think i'm currently thinking about that you know and then contemplating do i go tandem you know do i go out there and and designed a technology that would make it possible to do it alone. It's uh, it's up in the air at the minute, which way I'd like to tackle that. But that's definitely on the horizon, but far in the horizon. You know, in terms of short term, the next year or two, I'm obviously going back to Africa to, to pull this to bed, to go back there and, and finish, and then mm. just run a few of the marathons and a few of the ultras. But, you know, in the back of my mind is that Pan Am Highway, just now and again saying hello. That's great. What Now, what do you do for a living? Or can you do this professionally? Um, for a living, I actually do a, a lot of public speaking. Yeah. So I'll talk about, you know, the adventure in generally what it takes to get there. Because, you know, the story isn't necessarily out there in the desert or out there between Boston and New York. The story is in what it took to go from, you know, not running and what it takes sort of physically and mentally to to take this challenge on. You know, there is an added level of difficulty there with losing my sight. So, you know, I talk about those things. And then I also sort of work for a lot of technology companies because that is, that is my absolute passion, technology. And mm-hmm. I'm talking more about inclusive design and sort of approaches to sort of design methodology, making sort of technology more accessible to everyone and more inclusive. I mean, like, yeah, you're using um, the the RunKeeper.com app, but you're also re- using Google Glasses. I mean, you, you've really adopted technology. And can there be a day, and it seems like, why not, where you could basically have everything you need to do anything, not just run these ultra marathons, but be able to do anything even though you're sight impaired? Yeah, you know, the technology that I created with IBM for the desert, um, we're looking to expand upon. Um, because I'd like to... Essentially, we went to the desert because it's an open space. You know, there's not many obstacles, even though I did find the one flagpole, <laughs> flagpole. in the desert. Watch out for the flagpole. Um, <laughs> the, the next step is to then go to an incredibly complicated environment, something like um, the New York Marathon or the Boston Marathon, and try and do that solo, because what makes that particular challenging is the other competitors. You know, right. can we create a system that communicates to me how I avoid everybody? And if we're capable of making that system, then that can be 
heavily generalized and be incredibly productive to people's everyday life that are visually impaired yeah. because that system would essentially allow you to, to not only navigate but also avoid static and, and moving objects. Right. Well, and there's a we've had another man on the show that um, can use sonar as he just clicks and he runs and or and rides bikes and he, but there's technology. I guess I guess part of it is like you're saying, tune it in, huh? So that you can take it actually and go run a marathon with thousands of people. Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of working on you know similar lines as the echolocation, but it would um, the technology approach would be to use something like lidar which is laser radar, to identify the objects and then translate that into haptic feedback, hmm. which would be fed to like a belt you wear around your chest or your waist. And it gives vibration patterns, you know, letting you know where yeah. people are to allow you to avoid it. And that would be the hope. And, you know, that's the next step. Can we create that quick enough for me to compete in New York or Boston? Hmm. Wow. It's, um, and, and then, you. by the way, I'm not going to tell you your business, Simon, but I would for sure have some option of you know notif- noticing flagpoles <laughs> and and cheetahs that might run you down in the namibian desert for example I, apparently you need to watch out for the lions in the namibian desert oh, uh, pride of lions did start tracking um the competitors in the race are you serious yeah you yeah, might want to yeah. just you might want to just drive that one <laughs> just drive that leg hey yeah, um, simon will be safe in the car for a bit <laughs> that's right what do you tell um what do you tell some young person maybe going through the exact same uh, issue that you were as a young 13, 14-year-old boy losing their eyesight? What, what advice do you give them? Initially, I'd say, you know, it's a process. When you begin to lose your sight, it is upsetting. It's a very difficult time. And, you know, it isn't, you know, you, you flick a light switch and all of a sudden, you know, you've got fantastic determination and fantastic grit. It's a, it's a process that happens over a number of years, and it's small, iterative steps, and those small steps eventually add up to massive leaps forward. And that's generally what, you know, I try and push, that, you know, don't look for this sort of light bulb moment, because while the, the mountain for me was a trigger point, the skills that it took for me to train solo I'd been developing over the past three or four years by not using a long cane. Hmm. Then I was able to transfer those skills to running. It was basically just doing it at speed. So yeah, I just say that, you know, there is always light at the end of the tunnel. You just need to learn to adapt and whatever you want to achieve, if you're willing to adapt and move forward, anything's possible. Yeah. And um, your children, what do they, when they look at dad running an ultra marathon or, you know, finishing the New York marathon, what is that like uh, for you as a dad to to show to be able to be teaching them that? You know, uh, that's one of the reasons I took these things up. You know, we all tell our children that you can achieve anything you want and dreams are possible, but sometimes you need to go out there and prove it. You mm. need to show them that it's possible. It isn't a case of just telling them. And, you know, my children right now are still relatively young. My eldest is five and my youngest is two. Although the eldest actually came out when I ran Boston to New York and he ran part of it. Hmm. You know, he, he met me a couple of miles away from the finish line at Central Park and we oh, ran wow. through New York together, you know, came round into Columbus Circle and then ran to the finish line together. I'd love to say that we crossed the finish line together, but, you know, a few hundred meters from the finish line, he turned around and said, Daddy, Daddy, I'm really tired. <laughs> I was 
thought, oh, okay then. So we stopped and, you know, tried to give him the best. And then he spun it off and crossed the finish line first. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> That's great. He's playing you. He tricked you. It, he absolutely <laughs> did. And then there was only one medal as well, and he got the medal then. Did he get the medal? <laughs> he stole your medal, Simon. Yeah, but, you know, I prefer the... It's One worth it. Has it than me. And again, you're running as you're as you're finishing the marathon. Nobody knew. Um, nobody knew you were blind. I'm assuming. Um, in that particular marathon, oh, I did have a guide, but I don't tether. Yeah. Okay. Because what you what you generally find is um, blind people in races will physically tether you now to another runner. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something I've never really done, and I can just um, navigate around by hearing them in sound, and sometimes I'll just touch the, the elbow to, you know, make uh, sure yeah. it's there. So from the outside, I don't think people do know that I'm blind. I don't sort of wear anything to say that I'm blind. Right. Yeah. Wow. I do it quite anonymously. I don't know. You're, I think you're very inspirational I, to all of us um, because, I mean, I, I go on a walk like four miles a day, and it wears me out, and I think, I'm a wuss. Simon runs in the flipping desert. So, you know, it starts with small steps. When I come when I first started running alone, a mile seemed like a phenomenal distance. <laughs> and I couldn't believe that I'd run a mile. Yeah. And, you know, then you get to 10 miles and you can't believe you've run 10 miles. Then you get to 100, you can't believe you've run 100. Then 200. And, yeah, every small step just seems like a huge improvement. Well, it is. And, Again, I think it gives hope that uh, we can all, with a little change here, a little step, just a few steps, just get started and, and push yourself like you taught us. Simon Wheatcroft, thank you so much. Uh, again, everybody, go check out the website andadapt.com where you can get more information about everything that he's up to. You can read his blog. Simon, thank you. Appreciate it. I oh, know. Thank you. My pleasure. Truly, uh, truly. The good in the world right there. And a family man raising a family as well. Can you imagine what his kids are learning about? Just get to it. Start running. Right? Nobody's perfect, but we can always take a step forward. Try something new. Powerful. We'll take a break, folks. Stick with us. When we come back, continue the discussion of all things good right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Giving you the tools to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, you got to love Simon Wheatcroft. Now, is is that heroic? Or is he just living the life? You know, he's called to live. Everybody's basically, think about it, everybody's got a disability. It's what you do with it. His is blindness. Yeah, but that's a real disability. I don't know. Have you met my cousin Larry? He's got a personality disorder that is messed up. Is it a real disorder? No, he's just weird. So is it your personality that is your disability? Is it your? Uh, is it just how you your start in life? You started with a family uh, that had never gone to college, a family that had never, you know, were a, without a father in the home. Think of how many people are raised in inner cities without a father 
without a, a shot at going to college or anyone in the family that even goes to, to, to college or to go get a trade. I mean, that seems like a pretty big disability to start with. And maybe what we do is we use the same technique Simon has taught us of uh, you just you, – you don't have to run everything. You just run a, run a mile. Take Run a half a mile. Start small. But whatever it is, and as you're out there listening, it's your life, right? And we've all got to figure out a way to make the best with the little we've got. And don't look at it as just this major weakness. And that, that'll come in time. And every time we interview somebody that's, that, that's incredible like uh, Simon here, we, we, they tend to have the ability to not frame themselves by their weakness, by their disability. They frame themselves by their strength, by their, his curiosity. And he also seems like being able to mesh a bunch of things that he loves, technology, and exercise together and, again, isn't being hindered by that. So life's going to hand it to you one way or another and to, it's pretty random as well. I think the disabilities, the the problems we're all going to run into, a lot of the things are almost – they seem custom made for us. You know, why is it the woman that, oh, has so loved her hair is the one that got cancer and lost her hair? It's there's just always something, right? And it's almost ironic how it how it kind of gets handed out. Another little uh, moment of irony we'll post on our Twitter page. It's a video that is ah, oh, it's just the circle of life, folks. It's the circle of life. You you heard last week we did the eagle story where an eagle picked up I guess a house cat and brought it to its nest and they were recording the nest and uh, fed the cat to these baby eaglets, whatever you call them, little baby eagles. So I'm going to post another one. Again, another bird's nest, this time a robin with that beautiful red breast and uh, those greenish robin bluish eggs. Just this beautiful nest, just in a tree. Robin's just sitting on it, warming those eggs. Then the robin flies away. There, those eggs just sit there until a snake, nature's predator, comes and steals the eggs. Not funny, but the reality of life is things come. You know, this is just the circle of life, and uh, it's part of it. It's part of it. Um, anyway, it's crazy. I'm. We're just gonna post it on the Twitter feed at Doctor Matt Show. There's not a great lesson except, you know, you're either the egg or the snake. Just keep moving. This is the Matt Townsend Show.